it's time to enter the spoilerverse via our secret portal at the exclusive Arctic Club in beautiful downtown Seattle with our hosts, John and Kenrick and Jeff. Welcome to Spoiler Country. Hey, if you're listening to our show for the first time and you're on one of the social medias that we're on, like Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, any of those kinds of things, you should always check us out on SpoilerVerse.com. But if you want to keep up with our latest episodes, you should bring out your smartphone, get into your favorite podcaster, find Spoiler Country, and hit subscribe. Then you'll get all our new stuff. And if you want to reach out to us, you can do that in two ways. You can call us and leave us a voicemail at 707-656-2080. Again, 707-656-2080. Or you can shoot us an email at SpoilerCountry at gmail.com. to the Spoilerverse, and welcome back to Spoiler Country. I'm Kenneth Regan. That is Mr. Horsley, and today on the show, well, it's Into the Unknown's Own, Cliff Simon, isn't it? It is, and Jeff got to sit down and have a conversation with Cliff all about his new show, Into the Unknown, as well as his time on Stargate SG-1, and not to say that Jeff had a good time, but Jeff was like, gleaming after the interview in our <laughs> chat room. <laughs> yeah, it's one of his personal favorites. Yeah, it is, really is. For sure. So what do you know about Into the Unknown? I don't know much prior to this interview. I had just heard about it actually from uh, from Jeff talking about it, really. Yeah. It's a new show on the Travel Channel. Yeah. And it's you're following Cliff Simon going into, well, traveling to different areas, right? Yeah, fat, he's fascinated with the supernatural, so it's going around. I think it's like a six-issue series on the Travel Channel, uh, just going to the murky world of the paranormal and uh, kind of uh, looking into different places around the world that has uh, some some stories to tell. So uh, actually, this is kind of cool because Cliff's been really fascinated by the supernatural world for his whole life. And now on July 27th, the tra- Travel Channel is um, giving him a six-part series to do where he's going today. to- Today's yeah. the 27th. Today's the 27th. So today you can go on to Travel Channel and check out Cliff's new show because it looks fun. It looks amazing. And um, if you, well, after you listen to this interview, you're going to see why you want to watch because this guy's really cool. So should we just sit back and take a listen to, to Cliff and, and Jeff chat about this? Heck yeah. Hello to all, all our listeners. Today we have a very special guest, the amazing Cliff Simon. How are you doing today, Cliff? Oh, fantastic. Thanks for having me on the show, man. I really appreciate it. Great to be with oh, you. It's definitely, it's definitely our pleasure. I, I've been a fan of yours since uh, Stargate. Wow, thank you. <laughs> awesome. So how is the world treating you right now in all the weirdness? So, you know what? Yeah, you're 100% right. Very crazy. I actually decided to get out of uh, Los Angeles with my wife and we did a road trip to some friends in Georgia. And we're actually, I'm in Georgia at the moment, North Georgia, about an hour and a half north of Atlanta at a beautiful lake away from people and crowds. So yeah, kind of making the best of it for sure. Well, that's the way to do it. You got to get as far away as you can. And how, yeah. how is Georgia treating you right now? Oh, it's awesome. I love it here, man. It's uh, of course really hot during the days. Yeah. I like Georgia. It's a very beautiful place. Well, this must be an extremely exciting time for you because June 27th, uh, sorry, July 27th, your yep. show Into the Unknown is going to go live in the uh, United States. 
Yeah, I know. It's unbelievable, man. I'm so excited for this. It's, uh, you know, it's been a dream of mine for many years to have a show like this, you know, which just is just me being a guy out there doing what I enjoy doing. So it's really is a dream come true for me. Yeah. Been many years in the making and eventually we got it, which is uh, fantastic. So how long ago did the episodes get shot? Because obviously I'm assuming they were pre-COVID, right? Right. Yeah, we actually shot the first season uh, around this time last year. It's been, you know, the show got released into Europe. It's been released in South Africa and it's ongoing. It's getting released slowly into various countries. But I think for whatever reason, it was delayed coming to the USA, probably because of the COVID stuff um, and us not being able to shoot again for a while. So, yeah, it's been around the world and I'm very excited that it's premiering on uh, Monday night. Yeah, kind of an exciting weekend for me, for sure. So the so the episodes we're gonna see in on July twenty seventh are, the, are these gonna be the same episodes that they've been watching in Europe for the last yes. year or so? Yes, they are. Very cool. Because I was about to ask you, how can we watch those shows? But fantastic, we finally get to. Uh, sorry, say that again. No, I, I was um, about to ask you, how do we get to see those shows that everyone's been watching in Europe? But I guess we just wait a week. <laughs> oh yeah, not even a week, man. It's Monday night. Monday night, three days. It is amazing how fast time is moving, isn't it? Yeah, I know. It's unreal. Unreal. Yep. So I was, I was doing some research some research on you, and you mm -hmm. stated that your fascination with the paranormal came from something that occurred to you when you were younger. Right. Are you able to give some details on that, or is that something you're kind of holding close to yourself? No, no, sure. I mean, it was, you know, as a little boy, I was four or five years old at the time. It was a pretty traumatic experience for me, but something it never it never affected my life. What it did, it created an interest in the paranormal and in, uh, you can say, ghosts and all that kind of stuff. When I was really at that age, four or five, uh, and I was wide awake, I know for a fact I was wide awake, I wasn't a little boy dreaming, I saw black shadows creeping up the side of my walls and onto the ceiling in my bedroom. And of course, I was terrified. I had no idea what this was. But kind of as a kid, your mind is a little is kind of open. So there's also that fascination with it. But I was terrified. I ran out of the room, went to my parents. Of course, they brought me back to the room, switched on the lights, and there's nothing there. And it's kind of like in the movies you see where the parents are like, there's nothing there, honey. There's nothing there. And I'm like, there was something there. There was something. <laughs> so, you know, I think that, that was the seed. That's what planted the seed for my interest in the paranormal, definitely. So did you? Did your parents end up believing you? Did you? Do you find it hard um, to get people um, that people tend to believe you or not believe you on on this story, or do you tend that people do obviously trust? You know what? what? I've I've come across a lot of people, a lot of people who've said, you know, I've seen the same thing, and it's kind of interesting because when that happens to somebody, you you push it into the back of your mind. It's something that's there. It's like, okay, well maybe I. I didn't really see anything. People are going to think I'm stupid or or making up a story. So that's generally why, even you know, doing my show, people are kind of resistant to talk resistance to talk about what they've seen. For that reason, people don't want to be made a fool of, you know. And that's that's the interesting thing, and that's the whole uh, reason I wanted to do my show is because there is stuff out there. There's a lot of stuff out there that we do not understand. So we call it paranormal. In a hundred years' time. Maybe we'll have a complete understanding of it, and it won't be paranormal anymore. So do you think your show, or one of the ideas behind your show, is to help people know that there's other people out there who's experienced what they experience, and part of the reason of the show is so they feel more comfortable and more confident sharing their own stories? 
Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, the idea for my show, you know, I definitely wanted to educate people and uh, inspire them and open up their mind. You know, I'm a guy. So, I mean, I believe there's certain things out there, but I'm also, I come from a very logical place. I'm a pretty logical person. The idea for the show is like, I want to see stuff for myself. I'm not out to debunk any myths or any legends, or I'm not out to make a fool of people. Everybody who I meet in my show, all my witnesses, anybody who's helping with me, me with the investigation are all very, very credible people. And, uh, you know, they come from a great place. They, they've never tried to make money out of what they've seen. They've never tried to be in magazines or anything like that. And to me, you know, that's what makes them credible. And a lot of the times in the first season, I had to actually speak to people very quietly. And just me as Cliff Simon, I'm a pretty down-to-earth guy. And, you know, guys, let's forget the cameras here. This is something that I'm interested in. I'm not out here to make a fool of you or to debunk what you, what you believe. I want to see what you're telling me. And then they slowly come around to the way that I'm thinking. Because at the end of the day, I would kind of be doing this even if there wasn't a camera out there. I'm a, you know, I'm an adventurer guy. You know, I love to be out in the outdoors and do my thing. And I do love to be kind of alone in these extreme places. So it's something I would do anyway. And yeah. So yeah, people, they tell me amazing stories. And all I want to do is I want to see it for myself. If I can see it physically or prove it scientifically, that'll be fantastic. Yeah. So it sounds like, so the first few episodes that um, you have coming out, you're dealing with the Mojave Sandman. You're going to be talking to, you're going to be dealing with the um, Arugaroo. Am I pronouncing mm-hmm. that correctly? Arugaroo? That's right. Yeah. All right. Fantastic. And you're also dealing with the Brown Mountain Lights. Now the Brown Mountain Lights, is that a connection to um, aliens? So, yeah. So there's this whole new thought uh, process and it's always been a kind of belief of mine that there, the extraterrestrial behavior affects what's going on on the forest floor. It's always been, and lately a lot, that people have always cited something going on in the forest, such as a Bigfoot, Sasquatch, whatever, when there has been any kind of UFO or extraterrestrial activity and vice versa. When people have spotted UFOs, there's been something strange going on in the forest or there's been a a Sasquatch sighting. So there is a belief that the two are connected. And the other connection, the other belief and what I'm busy really researching and investigating is how come we've never found the body of a Bigfoot or bones of a Bigfoot. There have been footprints. I've seen footprints. We have, we show footprints in the show, but the footprints go and they end abruptly. Like we believe that the Sasquatch could possibly be going through a portal. He could be the eyes and ears of, of aliens. We don't know. You know, we do know that there is a lot more out there. You know, how come these footprints just end? And we've never found a body. It's they don't want to be found. That's my whole thing. You know, it's like, and I think I even mentioned that in the show. It's like there are so many things out there. And if they don't want to be found, they won't be found because this is a big place. And we have some very, very remote areas, especially in this country, where people have never set foot. Uh, in North Carolina, I go into one of those places and uh, it's pretty terrifying. Now, I was thinking to myself um, as I was prepping for the interview. That the timing mm. for this show is absolutely amazing. Did you see the New York Times article about the Pentagon alien uh, UFO that came out? I think today was released well, through the, in the New York Times. Did you, did really? you happen to know which one I'm talking about? I, I didn't see that, man. Tell me about that. Yeah, there was a apparently there's um, an article that came out about in the New York Times from the Pentagon. They were giving, I think, updates to Congress. And the person in the Pentagon is quoted in the New York Times as stating, 
this is what it says. And one consultant to the agency has briefed Defense Department officials of some highly unusual discoveries, including items retrieved from off-world vehicles not made on this Earth. That's from wow. that's a direct quote in the New York Times right uh, today. Wow. Okay. That's amazing. I, I got to look for that for sure. So, yeah, I mean, that is pretty cool. I mean, that the show's coming up because that's exactly what I'm doing. You know, that's what we're looking for. Interesting. And, and I was, oh, sorry to interrupt, but I was going to say, I mean, I'm someone who normally is kind of a skeptic, but once again, mm. you, when the New York Times and the Pentagon are lining up on this one, on this issue, I'm thinking to myself, holy crap, there's, there's right. definitely something very impressive about that. Right. Well, I mean, you've seen, I mean, there's countries in Europe that have completely, Russia is one of them, they've completely opened up any books about any research or investigations they've done for UFOs. The USA is one of the few places that still hasn't done that. They're still keeping it under wraps. But from pressure uh, from people, from the public, so many people and so many people finding things and seeing things that slowly people are starting to open up. And I think also what's happening is a lot of the older people who have witnessed things a long time ago when everything was very, very hush-hush, they all kind of want to get it off their chest. Whatever they've seen, they want to get it off their chest, you know, before they before they die. They want to tell somebody. So I think slowly things are really starting to come out. And, you know, I suppose that's the way you do it. You don't want people to panic, but I, I definitely don't think people will panic at all. I think people will rejoice. You know, I don't, I don't believe aliens are, um, are dangerous to us. I think they're inquisitive, just like we are. You know, I still believe we're very dangerous. I think they're scared of us. We're very, I think, compared to them, of course, if they can get you, we're very primitive and probably very dangerous to them. That's yeah, I mean, when you think about not only that, but was it two years ago they had those videos of, was it the Air Force pilots seeing those shapes? Right. Yeah. It, it's definitely, yep. it feels like we are, there's a, with this evidence coming out, you're going to get, we're yep. approaching a, a, a period where even people like me who are skeptics, I have to go take it very, very seriously, more seriously than I think we've ever would have considered it before. Right, right. I mean, the more credible these people are, you know, when you're talking about airline pilots, especially military pilots, you know, I was in the military. These guys are the top, top guys. And it's like they're very credible people. So even for skeptics, I think it's going to open up their mind a little bit, which is what I want my show to do. You don't have to believe in anything. I don't believe something really if I don't see it. I need to see it. I need to feel it or something like that. But sorry, I can't hear you, sir. Hello? We on the universe is a huge, huge. It's so big you can't even imagine it. Yeah, no. I'm sorry. I, I think your volume going in and out of just a little bit. Or so I think I missed the last thing you said. Honestly. Oh. So I was saying, yeah, so, you know, my show and all of that, like me talking, I, I really want people to open up their mind. The universe is a huge, huge place. And I always think what's more scary or if we're alone, is that a scary thought? Or if we're not alone? That's a scary thought. Which one is more scary? To me, thinking that we're totally alone in this massive, massive universe is a very scary thought. I mean, when you think about it, regardless of how that answer comes out, the answer to that question of are we alone is so profound, regardless yeah. of which side it is. I mean, if we're alone in the universe, that's such a profound answer to that question of what does that mean to be the only living intelligent beings in the entire universe? And if we're not yeah. alone, once again, extremely important answer. That's also right. extremely profound. You're not we're not necessarily special. There's other things out there and the only things right. that are out there, but the possibilities, if they can travel like that, those distances, it also opens the door of that means it's possible for us to eventually do so. I mean, no matter which right. side you fall on, it's amazing to, for that answer. Right. Right. And it's, it is, like you say, so profound and it's so big and they're such big questions that they just, we can't comprehend that yet, you know? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think I would like to think that if evidence came out and the way things seem to be is that I think people tend to adjust quickly to new information. I mean, when you think of all the te technological advancements, people tend yeah. to take it in stride. And I think this would be something else that we would yeah. take in stride. Yeah, no, that's why I totally believe that the government is, you know, treats people like kids and they shouldn't because we we will. We will accept things and understand things uh, a lot uh, easier and quicker than they think we would. So there's really no reason to hide things from people because and I don't think it's right either. We will. We as human beings are very adaptable to situations. And like you say, the, you know, the way we've adapted to technology and all of a sudden now, I mean, cell phones haven't been around that long, but it's a completely natural thing for us to have in our pocket. We don't even think about it anymore now do you have an idea of why is things are coming out like that now i mean once again if once again if the evidence is accurate and i trust the pentagon how why now do you think it's becoming um public you know what i think the first thing is like what, what i was saying because for so many years it's been so quiet so people have been you know sworn to silence and all this kind of thing but they're the older generations now and they're dying off and they want to they want to talk about what they've seen and they want the world to know the truth i truly you know i believe that you know if i was like an you know a very old dude who was dying and i'd really seen something that could impact the world and help the world maybe uh, i would want to talk about it so i think that's what's spurring all of this on and i also think the younger generations now are kind of demanding truth they're not as living with blinkers on kind of like when we grew up you know it's their, their mind are a lot more open. They have, they have access to information in a split second, which I never used to have as a kid. I used to have to go to a library if I wanted something, and I was too lazy to go to a library. So, <laughs> so yeah, it's amazing. I mean, so the, the, I think the kids now, the younger generations, are thirsty for knowledge, and they're thirsty for truth. So give it to them. Yeah, and it's kind of interesting. I was having a conversation with my father earlier today, and once again, with the sh your show, Into the Unknown, in, in my mind. And what I was mm. talking to my father was, if the alien issue uh, with and Pentagon, if that turns out to be true, um, right. and that's been hidden for so many years, what right. else then does that mean is then possible? Because once again, as someone who's also a skeptic, you think this is not real, that's not real, that could not be real. But now something that I thought may not be real and uh, aliens have touched down is proven, right. well, it really now definitely could be. That opens right. the door now for almost anything else to potential be real. Oh, yeah. Well, that's it. It's going to snowball for sure, I think. Now, going back into um, your show and, and using that as, as almost a springboard, the idea of what is out, because your show in many ways is based on a question of what's out there. It, it, that's my understanding. Right, it is. And yeah, of course, we, we do touch on, on extraterrestrial and UFOs, but that's not what it's all about. It's, it's, a, it's all about paranormal, which is there are things out there that we don't understand. Maybe we fear and we haven't really proven it. So, I mean, I have seen things and I've seen real footage of stuff from very credible people. And it's, it's terrifying stuff because we don't understand it. And I've always said, you know, it's like people generally... In a, in a way, whatever we fear, we want to kill. That's our first instinct as a human being. We fear something, we want to kill it, instead of learning to understand it. So, you know, I'm trying to understand what's going on out there. And whether it's a beast, whether it's a type of animal or a, a spirit, a ghost or a UFO, we need to understand this. So that's what my show is about. It touches on all of that, general paranormal in general. So I've seen your show described as part travelogue, part paranormal investigation, part survivalist show. And you've been mm -hmm. an Olympic level athlete, a veteran of the South African Air Force. You've been a teacher mm -hmm. of windsurfing. Does it feel like your entire life has directed you to this moment and this program? 
Yeah, absolutely. That's why, you know, I was approached four or five years ago by Robin Keats, his wife, who has a very successful show on television called Pitbulls and Paroles, which has been running for something like 10 seasons. She approached me to do some kind of dog show because at that time I was working with rescue pitbulls in Los Angeles. That never worked out. And then I got introduced to her husband, Robin. And because of the kind of person I was and what I've done in the past and certain skills, he approached me about the show. And most definitely, everything I've learned in my life, the discipline from sport, the discipline and skills that I learned in the military. And since then, I've researched and educated myself on a lot of things as well and physically stayed as strong as I can and in the ocean a lot, doing my kite surfing and windsurfing, all that kind of stuff. It's definitely culminated in me being able to go out into these places places, extremely remote places. If I need to climb a mountain or cross a river or scuba dive into a, a tunnel, I will. And without those skills, I wouldn't be able to do it. I wouldn't, I wouldn't have the confidence to do it. So, and the knowledge, you know, of being able to not panic in certain situations and that. So yeah, definitely culminated in the show. That's why it's such a big thing for me. As you know, I've been a theatrical actor for many years, but this is, this is just me being Cliff out there in the wilds and doing what I love to do. So it's a very satisfying feeling for me. Has there ever been or so far a location where you thought to yourself, I don't feel comfortable going there or doing that? Or are you basically risking no matter what for your uh, story? You know what? There, I mean, shooting season one, there was definitely places that were extremely strenuous, both on me and my, I have, you know, very tight crew with me who are extremely tough, adventurous guys. If I go underwater, they'll come underwater with me. If I cross a river, they come with me. If I go up a mountain, they come with me. But you know, when we, areas like when we were up Mount Shasta, we were up pretty high. We were up at about eight or 9,000 feet checking stuff out there. You can't take more than three or four steps without gasping for, for air. And I was running around up there, actually physically running. Very, very tough to do that certain things in the Louisiana swamps. I was in the water. I had a cottonmouth snake eating a fish right next to me. Pretty oh, wow. terrifying stuff. Yeah. And it's just like, okay, don't panic. We're in the water. Let's <laughs> just wait for it to move. But, you know, keep your head on your shoulders. Let's just... So you got to be aware of that. And also I prepare for all that kind of stuff. I understand oh. the areas I'm going into. I understand what kind of animal life is there, what's venomous, what's not venomous. So nothing's really a shock. I'm basically expecting it the whole time. If I'm in the water in the swamp, I'm expecting an alligator to come up to me. But you kind of prepare for it, you know, and I have eyes all around my head. <laughs> so <laughs> so how big is the crew that's with you? I mean, do you have, I know you have the camera people, I assume sound. Do you also keep medics yeah. with you guys and other specialists just in case something does go wrong? Or, or so, you just... Yeah. Uh, on a couple of the episodes, we had a medic with us. Other than that, it's my, I have a director and a sound guy and a cameraman with me, and that is it. And I have, we have what, what I like to call the creepy cam. I have the guy who does all the long shot stuff. We never see him. He's shooting me wherever I, I don't know where he is. And these guys, wherever I go, they just follow me. So, you know, we're not at all trying to hide the fact that I have a crew, very small crew with me. We're not pretending I'm out there on my own. You know, that's been done and people are kind of more intelligent and sophisticated to to pretend to be out there on your own. And actually later on in yeah. some of the later episodes, I bring my crew into it. I call them by name or there were certain instances where we had snakes all over the ground. I had to tell them to watch out for the snakes. So they're trying to keep me on camera and watching out for the snakes. So, yeah. So which is really cool because we're it's actually a team effort. And um, I think on two of the episodes, 
I had a medic. Uh, we had a medic in North Carolina, and I think we had a medic in the, the Pine Barrens in New Jersey, simply because those places were pretty snake. Well, North Carolina, many, many, many snakes, uh, huge rattlesnakes. I you know, had to wear gaiters for most of the time there. But yeah, that was it. Other than that, we never really had a medic on set, but we always knew where the nearest hospitals were, but nothing was within at least two hours of us where we were. We were in very remote places. So it's it's a risk, you know, but it's all calculated. Well, I mean, you guys must spend a lot of time preparing for not only the um, story that you're going to um, research, but also mm -hmm. surviving the area. Do you find yourselves right. more spending more time trying to figure out the issue, you know, whatever story you're covering, or do you find yourself more having to figure out how to survive the location you're going into? Which one do you think is what time is, well, where's the prep mostly going to? You know what? The prep for me before I go into, before I shoot it, if I know I'm going to North Carolina, I'll research as much as possible about the, the woods there and about, like I was saying, about the animals and the snakes and the terrain. Will I be able to pitch a tent? Will I be able to make a fire? How wet is it? What's the weather? Is it going to be raining nonstop? So nothing I light will, will make a fire. So I know I'm going to need shelter equipment. I would say it's kind of balanced because, you know, I have certain witnesses, but when I do have to set up a camp, there's certain things I have to do. I have to set up some kind of trap so I can hear if an animal comes around me. So I have to carry all of that stuff with me. A lot of times what we do, like in North Carolina, I had a vehicle, but then it's another two or three hour hike from where I park the vehicle to get to where we're actually going because there's not going to be a Sasquatch or a Rougarou or anything like that sitting on the side of the road waiting to be found. You know, we have to really go <laughs> You know, and look no, for it. It's not like that, be sitting there. Yeah, you know, it's not like that commercial. What's his name? The the Sasquatch guy with I think Geico. It's a brilliant ad. Oh yeah. Uh, he's like, no, my name's Cyril. What are you talking about? Uh, it's, <laughs> nice that easy. it's fantastic. I love that ad. But so I'd say it's kind of balanced. You know, I do have to know where I'm going. I have to know how and where I'm going to be able to uh, make some kind of shelter, if I'm going to make some shelter at all, and then I have to work out in my head together with my director like okay the story this is this is what we're looking for how are we going to get to that who are we going to talk to who has volunteered to talk to us and all that kind of stuff so i'd say it's more balanced but it's a hell of a lot of work but i like i said it's just an extremely satisfying thing because um it's me and it's just what i love to do so for for basically your show is about an hour long well obviously there's commercial breaks in but about an hour how much footage yes. is actually on the cutting room floor to make that hour happen at tons and tons and tons. And it's one of those things in this industry, I, I'm i like, oh man, you know, we had such amazing footage of that or such beautiful footage of that mountain. And it's not used because we only have without commercials like 45 minutes or 40 minutes to push the story from beginning to end. And it's not a long time. It's a very, very short amount of time. So we shoot for six days. An episode takes about six days to shoot. And we're shooting 12 hours a day, every single day for six days oh, wow. to make 40 minutes of uh, film. So you can imagine how much is left on the cutting room floor. And it's one of those things I have to learn to ignore and go and not worry about what wasn't used because you know, who knows? We might use it one day at a later stage. There could be blooper reels. I mean, you know, we have so much footage <laughs> and stuff. So. But the important stuff is in and the storyline is in because we still have to give people a story that has a beginning, a middle and an end. And that, of course, you know, 
is a lot of that falls onto Travel Channel and the amazing people there who who can uh, edit this out and the editors and, and make a story out of it and still keep it really exciting and really interesting. Well, the, the episode, the first episode actually sounds absolutely fascinating. So you're journeying, you're going to journey to Louisiana to find the, uh, to find the Rougarou. I'm going to say that probably wrong a thousand times, but the, the Rougarou. So right. what, so what drew you to that story? What, what, like, how do you first come across that story? And do you also find that the subjects you're talking to are actually just as fascinating as what you're looking for? Oh yeah. So first of all, I'll tell you, so the Cajun people there down there are absolutely the most amazing people I've ever met. They pronounce it Rugaru, and it's just like the most amazing pronunciation. I can roll my R's because I'm from South Africa, so it's kind of a <laughs> kind of gutful Afrikaans, but I love them. Louisiana was a story, of course, that came up uh, between Robin Keats and myself and Cineflix, and I definitely wanted to go to Louisiana because I'd only been to New Orleans. I'd never been into the swamps. I'd never been into the, you can call it the outback of Louisiana, which I knew must have been a very interesting place, and it was. And it's one of the, it is the my favorite place that I went to for the whole of season one. Of course, places like Hawaii are absolutely beautiful, but Louisiana was the most interesting, dangerous, um, fascinating place. The people I met were exactly interesting, fascinating, and dangerous. We had what we call local fixers with us on the shows, kind of guys, you could call them kind of like a bodyguard, kind of like a location scout, guys who know the area, guys who live in the swamps, guys who fish in the swamps. They know all the animals there. They're watching my back. Just the most amazing guys. I love them and I'm still in contact with them to this day. They've invited me back to go alligator hunting, which I probably won't do, but they have invited me. <laughs> But yeah, the Cajun people, I had a, you know, a, a blessing by a voodoo priestess who was just the oh, most wow. interesting woman. This is stuff that's passed down through the generations. So it's so old and it's got so much history to it. And the way the, the people out there, you know, they're shrimping and they're fishing, that's their life. And that's been in the way their family has lived for generations. So very interesting. You know, finding out that they came from, you know, French-speaking Canada and they settled in that area and they have these very, very strong beliefs and uh, very strong ties to voodoo and all this kind of stuff. So a very interesting place. And it kind of feels like it's, it shouldn't be in the United States, you know, but that's that's what makes the United States so amazing. It's such a diverse country, this. Now, have you ever, in investigating and talking to the people you're talking to, have you ever been drawn to another story while researching the one that you're focusing on? Yeah, I, yeah, amazing you asked that. And just to go back quickly, I know you asked me the people I spoke to, were they just as interesting as the, the beasts or whatever I'm following? Absolutely. As an example, in New Jersey, in the Pine Barrens, we were looking for the Jersey Devil. And I sp now the Jersey Devil was actually a, a person when he was born and to the Leeds family. Now the Leeds family goes back generations in the Pine Barrens and I actually met uh, one of the people who came on, kindly came onto my show, Clyde Leeds, an amazing guy. He is family of the Jersey Devil. Oh wow. So, I mean, what do you say to that? It's, like, it's unbelievable. He's a relation to this beast that's out there that's terrifying people in the Pine Barrens. So yes, they're all very, very interesting people. All the ladies and guys I had on my show are just amazing. Yeah. Sorry, and then your next question. 
No, I mean, it, it sounds fascinating. I mean, you're also in your first episode. I'm going to get the, the spell. The, I'm going to pronounce it wrong. I know I'm going to pronounce it wrong. But in the very first episode, you're going to be you're in the deadliest swamp in America. The I'm going to pronounce it the Atchafalaya Basin. How do you pronounce that? Okay. Yeah. So I'll tell you the easiest way to remember that is it's like you're sneezing. You go Atchafalaya. Atchafalaya. That's it. Yep. Actually, that works really well. That that, that little yeah. fake scene at the beginning really does make it work. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> that, that's, that's what one of the locals told me when I went there. I, I also said, and they're like, okay, Cliff, it's like you're sneezing. A chafalaya. And that's one way, a good way to remember it. But yeah, an amazing over a million square acres of swamp is unbelievable. So as a survivalist, how did you think in your head to prepare to go there? Like, What kind of precautions did you take in, to prepare? How, how did you go about doing that? So I know for a fact, you know, the swamps there, of course, many, many alligators, many snakes, dangerous snakes in the water. Everything there is about the water. So we knew we would have to have some kind of boat. We, we, we knew, I knew for a fact that the mosquitoes there are so big that you'll actually, when you leave that place, you'll need a blood transfusion because they attack you through your clothes. They seriously Holy bite shit. you through, what, yeah, through whatever you're wearing. They come right through. So I had to make sure I had a huge amount of mosquito repellent, which was just ridiculous, which I completely sprayed my clothes with. I try not to put that on my skin, but I was completely covered up. Some more equipment I had, I had a, a, a sleeping hammock, which completely zips up because you can't think of just sleeping out in the open there. You'll be eaten alive. And it's very, very muddy. So I had to make sure I had my waterproof boots on, uh, waterproof, my what I call Rockies, go, can go anywhere. And I did in Louisiana have a firearm, not because I'm hunting anything, but purely for protection out in yeah. the swamp, because not knowing what is gonna, what you're going to come across. And it's kind of a place where there's a lot of people out there in the swamps who are alligator hunting and all that kind of stuff. And some of them are are not very friendly to strangers, put it that way. So I just needed to be prepared with that. And I always carry a 17-inch Bowie knife with me wherever I go. You know, that's kind of my go-to because it's yeah. you know, I can use that for anything I need to. Uh, and that's about it, you know. And then, of course, you know, like I said, I need I knew the animals. I knew it was out there. Uh, but I knew it was going to be very wet, very muddy, tons of mosquitoes, and a lot of snakes. So, yep. Now, now has anyone on the crew suffered any major injuries during the filming of this, of, of your show? No, i got to tell you, unbelievably not. Uh, the closest we got to that was a few of the guys got uh, ticks, which can be very dangerous if they're not found, of course. Those little red ticks, you know, they get in everywhere and you can't find them. And the next minute you got tick yeah. bite feet. But no, nobody had any major injury. It was pretty amazing. We were all very careful. I was very, very careful because also it's it would ruin everything. I, I wouldn't be able to carry on. If I had to roll an, roll an ankle or, you know, break a leg or do a knee, it's, uh, that's the end of the whole, that whole episode. And then it's weeks and weeks of recovery. So we were super careful. And, you know, the kind of stuff I wear, I wear a lot of uh, guards. I wear a lot of like wrist guards at times. And I have uh, boots which are, will completely stop me from rolling an ankle they will stop me from standing on any kind of nails or any kind of sharp objects like that. So, yeah, you just prepare it. But, no, we were very lucky in that way. But, like, you know, as I said before, you know, the guys, my crew are very experienced guys. I have a certain amount of experience in that. So you kind of know what not to do. And it's like, okay, I'm not going to climb that boulder because this could happen. And is it worth it? No, it's not worth it. Okay, let's leave that. So you kind of make these decisions as you're going. 
Yeah, um, I actually, I, I did have one question. I was, I was looking at your, I don't know if this is the real one or not, you uh, LinkedIn page, and there was a quote under your name. I don't, like I said, I'm not sure if this is exactly your um, page or not, but it says, yeah. sit quietly and listen to what you can hear. Does that sound like a what? quote that you um, had okay. put? Yeah, that's my page, and that's a quote I, I kind of live by. I always tell people, you know, just sit quietly. There's a lot of things out there that you can't hear because you're being too, too noisy or talking too much. There's so much... When we're out in these places, like at the top of Mount Shasta or out in the swamps, if you just sit, which we did many times, midnight on the swamp, you know, on a swamp boat, just sit and don't talk and don't do a thing. There's this, there's so much you don't hear in your normal day-to-day -day life. And it's life. It's real life happening around you the whole time. But we're so busy with what we call life and society as we know it that you don't hear all of this. And it really is beautiful stuff, you know. So it's one of my go-to kind of meditation quotes, you know, sit quietly and listen to what you can't hear. I think that's I, – I must admit, when I read that quote, it sounds absolutely brilliant. It, it, it was – there's something that is so philosophical and also I think it's something that people do need to listen to because we do live kind of well, – at least pre-COVID, a very crazy yeah. active life where you're constantly worrying about work and your immediate yeah. issues that I think there yeah. is something to be said for the idea of just stopping for a few minutes, you know? Yeah. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, people, I think, are learning that now. And also, I think the good thing about COVID is that people have actually learned to just sit because there's nothing else to do. If you're sitting at home or you're isolating, just sit, just quietly, even if you just pick up a book, but just stop talking for five seconds, get off your phone for five minutes, uh, just do stuff that it's very healthy for your brain. Yeah, I, I must admit, I, I think COVID is definitely changing, I think, how people, and I agree with you, how people are thinking about their life. And I do think yeah. there's a, you know, and the idea of how was I spending it before, how much of it may have been wasted and right. by not, by being idle or, or not pr properly stopping to think about the, you know, the, all the different possibilities, things out there. And I do right. think your show is going to serve in a, a very important um, way of saying, Hey, cause I think from, from the little I've been able to see of your show on clips and whatnot, it looks like you are going to take us on the journey with it. You're going to let us see the world through your eyes. And it sounds like right. what you see through those eyes is fascinating. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely the objective of the show. And it's what I was stating right from the beginning with, with Robin and all of these guys and travel is that this show, I want people to come with me, follow me, Cliff Simon, into the unknown. That's why the name was phenomenal. It just works because... Like I said, even if I didn't have a camera, that's what I'm going to be doing. Maybe you're too busy or some people might be a little afraid to do that kind of stuff. So you know what? Come with me. I'm going to show you. Let, let me take you out into this place and just appreciate the beauty, appreciate the danger, open up your mind and just enjoy what you're seeing. And you know what? The United States, like I was saying, there's so many amazing places and there's going to be places in this this season that people who've lived in the United States all their life are going to go, oh my God, I didn't even know that place existed. And that's very satisfying for me because I've been in this country now 21 years. I'm an American citizen um, and I'm discovering these places. So like, I want people to enjoy that with me. Definitely. Yeah, I mean, that is, is, I think, especially in, in, a, in a time now where we're all enclosed, I think you yeah. are, I think we're going to look forward to that adventure you're going to bring on that show. And I think, yeah. well, do you think that people will go as visiting to the same places that you're, you're, that you're going to? Or, you know, would, would that be a positive or negative to have people in, in mass going to these locations? Or are they better away from people? 
Well, no. I mean, there are certain people who are definitely going to go out and look for them, but it's a lot of effort to where we're going. But places like the Atchafalaya Swamp in Louisiana, they can definitely get there, uh, and there's no ways that they can do it en masse. So it'll never be there'll never be too many people there. But I hope I do inspire some intrepid explorers and people who are interested in this to actually make the effort and, you know, go down there and see and meet the people, talk to the people, because it's the local people that make the place. Everywhere is beautiful, but there's light and dark to everywhere. And that's what I was discovering. Even Mount Shasta, Northern California, unbelievably beautiful area, beautiful mountain. But there's a, very, there's a pretty dark side to it as well. And to discover that is very interesting. But, you know, I've always looked at it, you know, human beings, we all have we all have a good and bad in us, you know, not bad as in bad, but there's a good side and a kind of bad side. Like that's what makes us human beings. So that's what the now, show is. Yeah. So now in, in going to all the different locations, you talk to a lot of different people or you do you find that no matter where you go and no matter what type of people you're talking to that were that there's very similar similarity between all these people like, do we have. Do you find commonalities between everybody? Yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. You know, all my travels, all my life, I've lived in big cities all over the world. I've done a lot of things. I've had a pretty interesting life. I mean, when I look back at what I've done, I think to myself, that's crazy. How did I ever do that? But one thing I've discovered is that we are all basically the same. We might speak a little bit differently. We might look a little different, but we all have the same daily worries. We all have very similar things that make us happy. You know, we have families. We care about our families. People are generally all the same everywhere. It's just some people, we do different things. You know, if you come from a big city and you're in the middle of a society, you your personality develops to, to cope with where you're living. If you're living in the middle of New York City, you're going to have to learn to cope living with that. So you adapt to that place. If you're in the middle of the Chafalaya swamps or in beautiful Hawaii in the mountains, you're going to adapt to living in those places. So it depends where you're happy. And when you get to meet all those people, and I've met them, we speak about our family we speak about what work do we do. We speak about our animals. If you're an animal lover, I've had dogs, I've had horses, I've had cows, whatever. So seriously, we're all kind of the same. Yep, for sure. We're human beings, so, you know. Well, well, I think that's fantastic. I, I think it's great that um, there is that connective tissue across not only our stories, but our cult country and culture as well. And yeah. even though this your Into the Unknown is going to air for the first time in the United States on Monday, it's obviously mm -hmm. aired in Europe for a while. Have you guys already started preparing for your next season? Is that already something that's in the works? Well, yeah, we've already got. So I mean, before the show, before we even shot the first season, we had something like twenty six stories ready to go. So we have plenty to last us a long time. And of course, I would love the show to go international, to go overseas, to go to Africa. There's some amazing places I would love to take people out there. In Europe, there's a lot of paranormal activity. So yeah, we, we have plenty of stories ready to go. And even uh, we haven't had any news on season two yet. We're hoping to get that pretty soon after season one airs i mean i can just keep my fingers crossed i really believe it's a it's a good show that people will enjoy and we will get more seasons out of it but yeah so we got 26 stories ready to go anytime that, that is awesome like i said and i can't wait to see it on um, monday i'm definitely going to be tuning in Thank i know we've you, been man. talking for a little while do you have a few minutes to talk about stargate a little bit or you got to go yeah, sure no we've got, got about 10 minutes if you know if that's okay with you 
Oh, that's perfectly fine with me, but I definitely want to talk about Stargate. I'm a, um, a long-time fan of Stargate. I will admit I didn't start watching it until after it had already ended, but I got hooked once I started seeing it on reruns. It's a, it's a, cool. fanat- it's a fantastic show, and I will have to say, your portrayal of Ball is phenomenal. You did such a great job. There's such a, a dynamic aspect to him. There's humor. There yeah. is swagger. You made mm-hmm. him such a fascinating character, and my question is, how did that come about? Because the, the I'm going to pronounce the name wrong. Gauld. They, there's a similarity to the characters because obviously they're all um, like they're kind of like warlords or aliens with you know an alien in their stomach. So the similarity. Right. But how do you how did you know to and how did you go about making your version your ball unique among right. them? Right. Well, first of all, thanks a lot, man. Thanks for the the support and the compliments. I appreciate it. It was like, I mean, I owe a lot of my career. Most of my career in the United States was because of the Stargate. You know, I was only here for a couple of years when I got that role. And I mean, being just just an unbelievable show to work on. Everyone from production right through cast, crew, everyone was just amazing. But the character, you know, when I first saw the first episode... um, was kind of like an audition episode. And the character of Baal had really been created with me in mind. The the character, I never read for the role of Baal. I never auditioned for the role of Baal. I went in with a casting director and I just read some some arbitrary uh, dialogue. I think it was some of Tilk's uh, dialogue. And then they said, great, you know. And it was probably a couple of months later, I, I got contacted and received a script in the mail and said, okay, your ball, here's your script, and uh, we'll see you in Vancouver next week or whatever it was. So I kind of had that in mind. And then, and that was, you know, Michael Greenberg knew me pretty well at that time. He was executive producer on the show, and he knew the kind of personality as I was and the sense of humor I have. And I wanted to bring that in the character. I had already decided I was not going to play this guy like an alien. I was not going to play him like a wooden two-dimensional bad guy, like a, you know, moustache-twirling bad guy, villain, because that can kind of get boring very quickly. So I wanted him to be different. And the, the, the moment that happened for me was in the fir- very first episode, if you remember, Osiris walked in and all the golds were sitting in a circle on our thrones. And she walked in and I decided, okay, she's a very nice looking woman. She has a great body on her. I'm going to slouch down on my throne cross my legs and look her up and down and smile and just act <laughs> like the jerk guy, you know, and, <laughs> yep, yep. Uh, it worked. I did that. And I heard little snickering and giggling from behind the camera. So I knew it worked. And that one scene set the whole tone for the five seasons of ball on Stargate. And it was fantastic. Nobody ever told me not to do that. Nobody ever gave me notes and said, you know, Baal is this and Baal is that. They left it totally up to me. And it was very freeing as an actor. It's very freeing when they leave you to develop a character the way you want to develop it. And that was the first time I'd really experienced that. They just gave me totally total freedom. I never had the right to saying Cliff Ball wouldn't say that because if I said Ball would say that, they would write it for me because I'm saying Ball would say that. I'm Ball. So. Right, right. It was fantastic. Just a great experience. Loved it. And I really miss playing ball. And hopefully we bring we bring the show back, man. There's so many, there's still a hundred million people out there who want to see more of the show. So, you know, we can keep trying. Yeah, I mean, I must admit it it at times, once again, now that there's social media, everyone talks about, you know, there's Trekkies and the big Star Wars fans and some other stuff. Mm-hmm. I don't think people appreciate just how big and loyal fan base. 
the Stargate yeah. fans are. And there's so many of when you go online, you go on especially on Facebook and their groups. They're yeah. they're there, they're loyal. And and the weird thing about Stargate fans, other than I think what separates them, in my opinion, from a lot of other fan bases, they're so mm. positive. You don't get a lot of toxicity in the yeah. Stargate fan base. Not at all, man. Not at all. You know, every convention I've done ever since I've been doing them, like when I'm doing my panel or whatever, I always thank the fans so much because it's the first time ever that, like you say, the Stargate fans are unbelievable. The support that they've given all the actors and the show over the years cons uh, consistently has just been unbelievable. And when I've done conventions lately, I mean, the show, we finished filming that show 10 years ago, whatever it is. It's actually grown. The popularity from what I've seen personally has grown because what's happened now is the original fans of the show have had kids. They've got families. They've brought their kids up watching Stargate and we have this whole new fan base, even one or two generations. We have this whole new fan base who want to see more. So it's kind of unbelievable. You know, when a little eight-year-old boy comes up to me and he's like, ball, I'm like, how do you know who I am? He's like, I've been watching you since I was one year old. You know what I mean? It's like, it's unbelievable. So, yeah, I mean, the, the, the Stargate fans are diehard and just so supportive of us. And also what's amazing, they're so supportive of whatever the actors are doing after Stargate, like my show now, they they want to watch it. They're so supportive. I can't wait to see it and all this. So, and that's unbelievable. As an actor, very few actors experience that. We we get to meet our fans and we get such uh, amazing feedback the whole time. Yeah, I must say, I mean, there there's always the idea of some of these more um, cult following shows. That and especially you got a lot of that with with um, in Star Trek, not to bash Star Trek, but a lot of Star Trek when you have the actors worry about typecasting or people only watch them in this or that. A show, yeah. but with Stargate, yeah. it sounds like, especially with a lot of the actors and actresses, that the fans want to see you in more things, and they find that encouraging to see you in more things. I think that's mm -hmm. just a, such a different attitude, and I think you as Ball was so phenomenal, and honest to God, I mean, I, I loved Stargate a lot, but why the hell were, were you not in more episodes? <laughs> Honestly. <laughs> they couldn't afford me, man. They couldn't afford me. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you know what it's what they have so many stories going on, but you know, they keep a character like Ball in consistently. It's it's kind of cool. And it's kind of cool in a way that he's not seen too much because you know, you, people can also get bored of him. So I think I think it was the right amount. And you know what? They gave me the opportunity to come back in continuum, which was unbelievable. I mean, I was the main dude in continuum, and that was just like that was quite a, a surprise to me. I didn't even know that until like two days before I started shooting. I didn't even know I was in it, so that was pretty amazing. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I, well, like I, said, I was, I was looking at talk, just talking about Star Stargate Continuum, and I thought mm. once again it was fin I was so happy that you were were in that movie and you did such a great job. Do you think you. Ball got the proper ending to his character, or did you were you hoping for something bigger? You know what? I th I think they finished it correctly because it left so much open. Like, there's two things: was that the real Ball? Because when I cloned myself, did I clone the symbiote? Was the symbiote cloned in each of the the, the, the clones? So if, if the answer is yes, then that definitely is not the real ball that they killed. If the answer was no, there was only one symbiote, then that, okay, they got the real ball, but now we have the host body who's a 4,000-year-old human being who's, who's got to be a very interesting character, and there has to be a reason why Ball chose that human being to host him. He must have been, maybe he was a king, maybe he was someone very, very powerful. And he has all this knowledge in his head of Ball. 
he saw what Baal did. He's seen all these things. So, I mean, you can imagine the knowledge he has to give to the SG-1 team or to Earth. So either way, there's some very interesting stories there. So I think they finished it off correctly. It wasn't too overdone, but it wasn't underdone. Well, I think a lot of that has to do, obviously, with you. I mean, you brought such a quality to that character. When you're on screen, there's a gravitas there, and you felt like you're um, watching someone who would be a ruler of this empire. And I think that's right. all I had to do. I mean, you gave Ball so much character that even right. without getting any of the backstory, you knew what Ball was all about. Yeah, yeah. Well, thanks for that, man. I appreciate it. I'm glad you see that because uh, that's exactly what was in my mind for sure. So I'm glad that all came across. And yeah. And you know what? It really, seriously, I just played ball really as myself. I mean, of course, there's there's some acting involved, but it's, I wanted him to be, I just wanted him to be as real as possible. And because I wanted him to be relatable, which I think that's what made him popular and kept him in the show. So I'm glad yeah, you uh see that. Yeah. Yeah. Finn, I also, um, I just have one more question. I know, like I said, you got to go, but I, this is um, my uh, one, one other, qu one last question. You're, it seems like the first episode that really felt like they were giving you a real chance to shine as Ball was in the episode season six of Abyss, when you're torturing mm -hmm. Richard Dean uh, Richard Dean Anderson's character of Captain O'Neill. Yep. So yeah. my question for you is, what was Richard Dean Anderson like to work with? Is he because he seems so likable on the show, but obviously he's acting. What what, yeah. what was that like? So Richard's great. I mean, I was very excited, of course, to work on Stargate from the beginning because I'd watched MacGyver growing up like most people and was really excited to to meet Richard and work with him. And he was great on set. You know what? Richard's a professional. He's been around for many, many years. Uh, and actually, funnily enough, that episode, he wasn't there that often because he was off. I think he was doing some show, some episode or something for Discovery. So I actually worked a lot with his stand-in for that episode, which was really, really difficult because here <laughs> I am trying to be ball and I have a guy standing in front of me reading off a script. But when Richard was there, it was great. And what was so cool about Abyss is that that's what set Ball's sense of humor as well and what set the relationship between Ball and O'Neill. We both had this kind of teasing sense of humor like oh yeah okay bocce ball very funny so now let me throw a knife at you or let me pour some acid on you so it really set the whole tone for the next couple of years so it was very well written i must say but yeah they definitely that's where ball they gave me a, that was a big episode for ball and they wanted me to set the character right from that yeah the banter between you two was fantastic yeah. the humor you gave the character and once again playing off Richard Dean Anderson, who also has that kind of sarcastic, almost gallows right. humor about him as well. It was, it was yeah. just phenomenal. And I really hope if they ever bring back Stargate, and I heard something from Joseph Malozzi, Malozzi mm -hmm. um, who apparently he's still trying to talk to people about doing it. They better yeah. bring you back <laughs> as the villain. Because like I said, it, right. it, you were definitely singular in how, in, in how well you handled it. Well, thanks very much. I appreciate that, man. But yeah, like they know, and Joe knows, uh, all they got to do is ask me, man. It's such an amazing, fantastic franchise. If I could be part of it for the rest of my life, it would make me a very, very happy man. So yeah, we'll see what happens in the future. You know, I'm available anytime they want me. So for sure. Well, like I said, I want to thank you so much for talking with me. I want to remind all the listeners, July 27th, uh, what, what time is it? July 27th. Uh, 11 o'clock Eastern, 10 Central. All right. Is Into the Unknown with Cliff Simon. And it sounds phenomenal. So definitely Thank check you. that out. Awesome. And I, like I said, Mr. Simon, you were phenomenal to talk to. I've been looking forward to this interview for a long time. You did not disappoint. So thank you so much.
Oh, you're welcome. Thank you for having me on the show, man. A great interview. Really uh, fun chat. It's nice. I love it when it's uh, kind of light and it's just conversational. It's great. So thank you. I greatly appreciate it. And we're back, man. That was cool. That was really cool. That was really cool. I can't wait I mean, to hear the swamp ta- the swamp monsters and the mythical beasts that he actually investigates because it's going to be a lot of fun. Well, dude, and he and he goes through he he, he goes to the North Carolina forest to look for stuff, and I don't know why, but ever since like I, my company has an office in North Carolina, before that I never knew anything about it, but ever since I've like gone there, everything involves North Carolina now for some reason. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it's always kind of cool when you go to all these different places and you have, especially going to like. Appalachia, and you're going to North Carolina, and yeah. Cliff is from South, um, or bleh, I almost said South America, but he's from South Africa, and it's always yeah. interesting to see someone who's coming from a different country's take on our supernatural tales. It really is, and it's it's it's, it's going to be a fun show. I'm, I'm actually really excited to watch this. Yeah, me too. All right, guys, there you go, huh? That's yeah, that that's a show, man. That is a great show, and if you like that, and you want more. Go check out spoilerverse.com. We have a ton of stuff for you to peruse. We do. We got more podcasts, we got more articles, more previews and reviews, and all that fun stuff. And while you're there, click on that, that store link. Go pick up a t shirt or a hoodie or a mask or something and show your support and show your love. There you go. All right, guys. I think I think we're out of here. Yeah, we're good, man. All right. Don't forget, oceans of podcasts. We are Cthulhu. And as Cthulhu compels you to do, open the mic and read more. <laughs> and see how-